This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts Five The public no longer thinks the NHS is a national treasure It's a national disaster Four It seems to me that Keir Starmer is very reluctant to commit himself to anything that's likely to need money Big businesses you know, shafting consumers is not capitalism. That's not pro-business. The first time the NHS knew that it was going to be protected was when it saw the slogan on the lectern at number 10. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The NHS, 75 years old this week, is feeling all the aches and pains one would associate with such an age. In fact, soaring waiting lists combined with post-pandemic absenteeism and prolonged industrial action means our NHS is in the midst of probably the most serious crisis in its history. The bill for our health service has spiralled up from 27% of all public spending at the turn of the century to 44% now. And yet, when it comes to key health outcomes, oncology, stroke, heart disease, survival rates in the UK are way down on the international league table, among the worst, in fact, in the OECD group of advanced industrial countries. Our political and media class, Alison, seems incapable of considering healthcare systems which, while free at the point of use, don't amount to a massive, inefficient state monolith. Yet numerous systems on the continent deliver far, far better outcomes, while remaining open to all. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak's personal poll rating among Tory members and activists has gone negative for the first time. That's according to the influential Conservative Home website. And the peak of rioting has now passed. So says President Emmanuel Macron, reflecting on a week of violence in front of no fewer than 200 mayors from across France, representing areas affected by the unrest, sparked, of course, by the fatal shooting of a teenager by police in Paris on the 27th of June. But let's start with the economy, Alison, because in a stunning planet normal role reversal, an upending of the natural order, it's you, co-pilot Pearson, <laughs> who's written a column on the Bank of England. You've trained me well, haven't you? It was it was inevitable that I'd move into the prime economic role. I'm looking over my shoulder. She's she's coming for my job. <laughs> I did I did have to text you several times yesterday just to check a few of the details, didn't I? I wasn't going to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it's all about crushing our heteronormativity. And even as I was writing the phrase that Stonewall wants to crush heteronormativity, I thought they better not try that on co-pilot Halligan. Crikey. He's a big bloke. <laughs> it takes a lot to crush the co-pilot. Yeah, I was um, 
quite incensed this week. I mean, there are several quite woke stories converging, aren't there, Liam? And one of them this week was that the Bank of England, um, if you can imagine, are tremendously allegedly formerly stuffy central bank has been entering its submissions to Stonewall and the bank and other top city institutions and corporations are scrabbling to be included in Stonewall's list of the top 100 employers and as part of this unbelievably lengthy submission the bank has stated no less that people of any gender identity can become pregnant. Now, we, now we did think the Governor Andrew Bailey was looking a bit overweight, didn't we? But who, know, who knew, Liam, that he was with child? <laughs> and there are other things the bank has said, encouraging nursery school children to locate their own trans identity. I'm not making this stuff up. Gender-neutral toilets everywhere. And I did wonder where this left the old lady of Threadneedle Street, which is, of course, the Bank of England's nickname since a famous James Gilray cartoon of 1797. Clearly, we can't have the old dear going on being a woman anymore. So I decided that she should be the non-binary hermaphrodite of Threadneedle Street. What the hell is going on, Halligan? Well, your column, which, of course, we'll put the link in the show notes to this episode, it really is at the sort of cutting edge of where economics meets identity politics and it's mad that those two subjects meet it's completely mad that the bank of england is getting involved in these debates and this at a time when of course the bank of england has never been under closer scrutiny for what it actually is meant to do which is tackle inflation and rightly it's under close scrutiny because for months and months and months, inflation has, of course, been four or even five times higher than the Bank of England's 2% target. And I'm afraid a lot of this ridiculousness at the Bank of England, you know, the Bank of England becoming part of environmental policy started under former Governor Mark Carney, who was very keen and is very keen to sort of burnish his green credentials so he can get another sort of high powered job across international institutions. It seems you have to be you know, woker than woke to get these jobs these days now. And what must ordinary people in the UK think? Well, what do we think? Why is this bandwidth being used on wokery at the Bank of England at a time when the Bank of England should be extremely focused on working out how to get inflation down, on communicating to the economy, to mortgage holders, to businesses who are suffering badly because it's now having to raise interest rates too late, which means they have to go up higher and stay high for longer than would otherwise have been the case if they were using some of the brain power within the organisation back in 2020 and 2021, as some of us were, looking at financial markets, looking for the signals, showing that inflation was coming down the track. It was obvious there was going to be a big inflation to anyone with an open mind back in the spring of 2020. And that's when I started writing it and one or two other journalists too. We were ridiculed by the Bank of England. Well, now I would say with this kind of stonewall madness, the Bank of England is opening itself to ridicule. And that's not to say that Stonewall doesn't cover important issues. Of course it does. But it's the nature of how they campaign these days. This is not a proper debate taking the country with you. I would say Stonewall, in fact, are doing a disservice now to a lot of the rights of the people that they represent. Rights that I care deeply about too, as you know. But it's become so aggressive and so driven by cash that I think it's now counterproductive. I think it's actually really alarming, Liam. I've been obviously was doing some research 
for the piece. And you think, are these supposedly intelligent professional people so guilty about their straight white privilege that they are bowing down before this LGBT community? And by the way, let's say that we've had lots of emails from gay people and they are not at all happy to be in that bracket into the, you know in now they don't want to be in the lgbtq they just want to be what they've always been gay rights in the workplace rights for gay people have come on enormously and that's absolutely fantastic but this seems to be an entirely other plot now to infiltrate key institutions in society and bend them It really is astonishing how this quite aggressive trans ideology has managed to so completely capture the metropolitan managerial class. Now, if it it was just sort of idiots at the Bank of England wandering around with their rainbow lanyards, you know, that you could say, well, okay, fair enough. But what we're seeing now, the Telegraph had a story this week, some listeners will have seen it, that so successful has Stonewall been at proselytising that the majority of high street banks are now members of diversity schemes run by this charity. And and another big story of the week, co-pilot, is banks closing the accounts of people who do not hold what they consider to be correct views. Very, very alarming development indeed. It certainly is. And it's part of a sort of broader economic malaise, isn't it? You've now got even the government noticing and calling in the banks about the huge gap between mortgage rates, yes. which are now consistently above 6% for a standard variable mortgage. A lot of people coming off fixes at 1% or 2% are yeah. facing 6% plus, more in some cases, depending on their loan to value and so on. And yet savings rates are barely 2% or maybe a little bit more. And of course, the banks take ages to raise the savings rate after the Bank of England has raised interest rates, but the mortgage rates go up almost immediately it's just another example of rip-off Britain. You know, look, I'm a pro-business guy. I'm a sort of broadly free market person. But I am constantly outraged at the way big businesses behave. Big businesses, you know, shafting consumers is not capitalism. That's not pro-business. Mm-hmm. People who are pro-business should be pro-competition. They should be pro-big businesses making what we call in economics normal profits rather than super normal profits and giving customers a good deal and giving them choice and our banking sector now is even more concentrated than it was before the global financial crisis in that there are fewer banks and they have bigger market shares and that's why you get these consumer abuses talking of consumer abuses Alison some consumers of British politics now are very negative on our prime minister partly because of the economics partly because of inflation partly because I think the Conservatives aren't tackling a lot of these culture war issues. Among Conservative activists who read the very important Conservative home Mm. websites, Rishi Sunak is now polling negative, so those who approve of him are outweighed by those who disapprove of him. And that's for the first time since he was Prime Minister. And let's be completely clear, Conservative home is a niche website But among the Conservative faithful, among the kind of people who have votes in Tory leadership elections and who sit on the back benches, what it says is gospel in terms of how popular politicians aren't and are not. So I I think Rishi Sunak now, as a lot of his sort of five targets for the end of the year, Mm. if they're not going to be met when it comes to NHS waiting lists, when it comes to small boats, when it comes to getting the economy growing, when it comes to uh, getting inflation 
down below 5%. I think on a lot of those fronts now, he has a serious problem. I think it's gallows time, really. I mean, it is absolutely terrible. And we see Nigel Farage, don't we, you know, out there front and centre, talking about the fact that he has been cancelled by his bank. He is um, talking about this. Also, something I'm baffled by is mortgages are going up, Liam, aren't they? But um, what about the um, interest for savers? So how come banks are clawing in all this money from the higher interest rates on mortgages, but not passing it on to the person whose nest egg has remained stubbornly the same? And and just, just to ask... That's like asking bank robbers, why do they rob banks? Because that's where the money is, right? Yeah, well, I... <laughs> banks, I will, banks will do this unless they're kicked in the shins and told not to. That's the Yeah, that's but the that's, what, that's what... They think customers are too thick to notice and journalists are too thick to notice. Yeah, but Sunak should be, you know, he's the Prime Minister. He should be saying we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. You're not passing on any of the benefits of these mortgage rates to ordinary savers who've had a really rough deal of it. We should just say, as if there isn't enough pain in the Conservative Party, 20th of July, just before uh, co-pilot Pearson's birthday, <laughs> you know, hold the bouquets, <laughs> there will be three by-elections. And I think we can say with some confidence, I mean, the three Tory MPs who stood down after the Privileges Committee verdict on Boris Johnson, I think they're going to be pretty excruciatingly embarrassing events for Rishi Sunak. Because as we've said for quite some time, co-pilot, haven't we, there really isn't anything much like a Tory safe seat anymore. Well, we saw that, didn't we, when the Tories lost the by-election in Tiverton and Honiton yeah. last year, yeah. you know, reversing a huge majority. And it's worth just going through those three by-elections. 20th of July, it's just bad luck again for Rishi Sunak that they're all falling now when he is clearly under pressure, not least from his own party faithful. we got Selby and, and Ainstie, a rural North Yorkshire seat, close to Rishi Sunak's seat. There's a 20,000-plus majority there for Nigel Adams, who's standing down. You've got almost 20,000 majority, David Warburton standing down in Somerton and Froome in rural Somerset, of course. And then Boris Johnson's West London seat, Uxbridge and South Ryslip with a 7,000 majority. That the 7,000 majority one is obviously easily losable. But as you say, Alison, so are the ones with majorities either side of 20,000. Yeah. And what is it going to do to confidence in Rishi Sunak's leadership if the Tories lose on the same day all three by-elections and inflation is still high and the economy is about to go into recession? I mean, you say gallows time. Do you really think the Tories would go for another leader before an election in autumn 2024? I, I don't think they've got the stomach to do it. I think too many backbenchers and even members would think this is deeply counterproductive. We're going to be the laughing stock of the country and the world. By Gallo's time, I mean, I just thought when um, last week Sunak was proudly unrolling his 15-year sort of um, jobs plan for the NHS. <laughs> Talk about no jam today. It was like someone in the crematorium, you know, about the curtains are parting and the coffins going in and they try to order a Chinese takeaway. I mean, you just thought, it's not going to happen, is it? It's absolutely <laughs> ludicrous. So I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, you know, I was never particularly convinced about him anyway, but I think 
at this point now, when they have nothing to lose, the kind of announcements that they should be making are nowhere to be seen. And they are now literally, Liam, going to put back the £170 green levy onto people's energy bills, which were suspended for a while because of the cost of living crisis. I mean, he could be taking a stand. We're going to come on to the emails later uh, where we have a mum talking about what happened, shocking things that happened in an Essex school with mixed sex lose. You're not allowed to say mixed sex now, Liam, because there are 350 sexes, aren't there? So he could be, as the Prime Minister, standing up and really acting like a Conservative. But the biggest complaint I see coming through from Planet Normal listeners and Telegraph readers, there's Labour and there's Labour with a blue rosette, as one Planet Normal listener says. That's it. That's our choice. Unless something absolutely extraordinary happens, Starmer is heading for a huge, huge victory. I think the Conservatives could easily lose 150, even 200 seats. It's that bad. So we're looking from Sunak for something, not these 05 targets I've set. No, I mean, the small boats thing is an embarrassment. Plus, we've seen this week, haven't we, this group called the New Conservatives, Conservative MPs, many of them in red wall seats who were elected either in 2017 or 2019. They obviously know, Liam, that the writing is on the wall for them. And they this week were demanding action to bring down net immigration. Because let me tell you, If in 2024, the net immigration figure is announced and it is anywhere near the 606,000 we saw this year, it's absolutely kamikaze. So we are looking at a Conservative Party which has lost its purpose, has no idea how to behave in a Conservative way and is is on the way to well-deserved oblivion. I think we can't let this week pass also without mentioning what's been going on in France, a country close to both our hearts. Really incredible pictures, not so heavily featured on TV news bulletins, actually, but we've had rioting across France, of course, sparked by that tragic death of a teenager at the hands of police in Paris. Copycats riots all over the place, easily the worst riots in France since 2005, and a real test for Emmanuel Macron now, who says that he thinks... The worst of the rioting is over. But it, it, it is, I think this is indicative of something a lot broader because across Europe now, the right is resurgent. In Italy, you've got Maloney, you've got Vox, the populist party in Spain, really coming to the fore, the Swedish Democrats in Sweden, you've got centre right and right wing parties in the Netherlands, absolutely furious that the Prime Minister Mark Rutte is keen on closing down lots of farms. And of course, in France, this is manna from heaven for La Front Nationale, for Marine Le Pen, who, of course, has been gaining, gaining, gaining the Le Pen's, that political dynasty in each of the last French presidential elections. I mean, I think it personally, it would be a disaster for France if Le Pen was elected, but it is now by no means out of the ordinary. And let's not forget, Alison, also in Germany of all places, you know, the European country that is most touchy and most careful about allowing, you know, right wing politics to emerge for all kinds of mm. historic reasons. Yeah. 
AFD now, a party that's way to the right of any mainstream party in the UK. They are now winning seats. They are now taking mayoral elections in important parts, not just of East Germany, where they've always been more popular, but West Germany as well. And isn't it interesting, Alison, we could soon have a centre-left government in the UK while so much of the EU is moving quickly to the right. Are they really going to want to get closer to Europe when Europe is full of right-wingers? Is Keir Starmer's left-wing Labour Party really going to be able to portray continental Europe as, as civilised and full of cafe culture and grown-up politics the way that the UK isn't? But this rise of the right in Europe, obviously branded far right by the BBC, but actually centre right, as you and I would see it. This is this is the European elite entirely to blame. So I think concern, which I have about immigration on the scale, we've seen it millions of people, 10 million people in the last 20 years. That's partly to do with stress on housing, on hospitals. We're going to talk about the NHS later. Unbelievable stress on public services and British people feeling they're not getting what they need. And then resentment grows. I think it's perfectly likely that we will see the rise of a party of the right, certainly to the right of the present Conservative Party, which is basically, you know, lying in the same bed as Keir Starmer. And I think I think we will see that after the next election. I think the levels of immigration, the main thing is, is you cannot integrate if you're allowing that number of newcomers at that speed. So, I mean, it gives me no pleasure to say it, but I think we could easily see riots kicking off as the health service and housing deteriorate further here. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics, wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! As it's the 75th birthday of the NHS, we decided that this week our guest on the rocket would be an NHS insider. Roy Lilly is a former NHS Trust chair, a health policy analyst, writer, broadcaster and commentator on all things health and social issues. Roy was the vice chairman of West Surrey and North East Hampshire Health Authority and formerly a conservative member of Surrey Heath Borough Council, where he was mayor in 1988-89. Roy runs the NHS Managers Network, which produces an opinionated free newsletter believed to reach 300,000 NHS managers' inboxes. Roy Lilly is the author of over 20 books on health and health service management. He was an active opponent of the Health and Social Care Act 2012, and Roy was widely credited for introducing the nickname La La for Andrew Lansley, the then health secretary. I began by asking Roy Lilly, what is there for people to celebrate as the NHS turns 75 with record waiting list, patient satisfaction at a low ebb and strikes? Will the NHS live to see its 100th birthday? 
Good afternoon. I think it should be celebrating the fact that it's still there after 75 years, I suppose. The beverage report, I think Bevan turning it into the legislation, the 1948 NHS Act, that was a defining moment. And if we look back through the history of the NHS, it's full of defining moments, I suppose. You know, if you think in 1957, the whooping cough immunization program began. And by 1970, whooping cough had pretty much gone. Mm. So there are lots of things that we can look back on. It's true to say that it's going through a hell of a bad period. It's a culmination of 10 years of flatline funding after the world banking crisis. It struggled through very really unprepared for COVID as as we're finding out through now through the COVID inquiry. And of course, now we've got these wretched strikes, which are very Mm. debilitating, much more, I think, than the NHS is letting on. So, I mean, I think the fundamentals are there. I think the attachment to it is there. I think people can see the role it plays in today's world. So we've gone through, you know, a huge change. I think it would be unfair to condemn it for the things that have happened to it to really get it in the, the extremis that it's in. Well, yes, you say that, Roy, but the fact is that there are really very alarming data now coming last week from the King's Fund and from Civitas saying things like there are 50,000 avoidable deaths a year because of the, you know, very poor standard and delayed standard of care. Now in the NHS, we've had several very senior medics on Planet Normal, including Professor Pat Price, one of our leading oncologists, saying that the cancer care in the NHS is now an outright disaster. It simply isn't developing compared to comparable countries in the modern world, is it? I think that's fair. But if you're going to make the comparisons and you have to look at how the other healthcare systems, I mean, you take France and Germany, for example, probably our nearest neighbours, both of them spend per head of population on healthcare nearly £2,000 a year more than we spend. And we are at the bottom. We spend about two and a half thousand pounds a year, roughly, per head of population. And if you compare that to other countries, you can see that we're way behind. And people often say to me, oh, you know, I went on holiday to France and it was wonderful. I went to hospital. It was all terrific. And it is. There's no question about it. And the reason is that these countries have invested in their healthcare system in a way that we haven't. We were already heading for trouble before COVID. If we think back to before COVID, we had four and a half million people on a waiting list and four and a half million. It's a record what the hell's happened. And of course, at the time, we had 40,000 nursing vacancies as well. All of that was masked by COVID. Somehow or other, the NHS muddled through very unprepared, as I say, as is emerging now. And so we came out of COVID with an exhausted workforce, no respite with any of that. There was no plan to deal with the workforce. I mean, for heaven's sake, last week, we published the first workforce plan for the NHS for the first time in 20 years. I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. I just want to pick you up on some of these figures. So in the year 2021-22, total healthcare expenditure in the UK was £280.7 billion. Pounds. The figures I've got are saying that's more than you've said per person, £4,188 per person. The spend amounted to 12.4% of GDP, slightly higher than in 2020. And then compared to other OECD countries, the UK is already spending above the average as a percentage of GDP. However, 
to take up your point, the OECD also includes countries with less comparable economies, such as Turkey. Now, compared only to Western European and G7 countries, the UK does spend slightly less than the average proportions of GDP. In general, we spend less than most of our Northern European neighbours, but more than all Southern European countries. Now, given that comparable spending, that King's Fund report last week found that our health service was the second worst out of 19 countries at that key metric called saving lives. The NHS underperformed on cancer and life expectancy, and it was the absolute worst when it came to stroke victims. This truly horrifying data tells us that the NHS is in desperate need of major reform, not just more money. And I think that's an argument that you can make. And I don't have the figures in front of me to give you an argument about the numbers. And the fact of the matter is we haven't invested in our system over a long enough period. The performance of the NHS has slipped. And it's quite clear the outcomes that you highlight are not good. In fact, they're very poor. And the issue is, okay, it's in need of major reform. Well, describe to me what that reform might entail. If it is a different way of paying for healthcare, I mean, that's often that's the popular trope. I'm agnostic about that. I really am. I mean, you know, you can take your taxes out of your left hand pocket and your insurance money out of your right hand pocket. It's still your trousers. You've still got to pay. People still have to pay. I mean, I've been in and around NHS management for for nearly 50 years. I've seen 12 major reformations of the health service. They've changed absolutely nothing. They've consumed an enormous amount of money. And we're still, you and I, here sitting talking about NHS performance. Coming to this 15-year workforce plan announced last week, now some of us would say the Conservatives should have started training a lot more doctors, nurses, midwives 13 years ago when they first got into government. It's a fine time to start saying now that we need a workforce plan. There are all these managers in the NHS, Roy. In other industries, people would be actually having to do workforce planning. They must have been onto this for a long time. And we've got these huge vacancies in things. Is this new workforce plan enough? And what should happen in the meantime before all those desperately needed staff arrive on the scene? The NHS can't have a workforce plan unless it gets buy-in from the Treasury. Now, this workforce plan that's been published is the first one for 20 years, and it's taken over five months to get published. The NHS has been working on a workforce plan, and I've known people that have been working on it for some time. They've not been able to publish it because it's been held up in the Treasury, because the Treasury won't underpin the cost of doing the workforce plan. It's only funded for five years. It's $2.4 billion, which is no small beer, but it, this is a long rollout. To answer your question, what difference is it going to make right now? I shouldn't think any. So the plan to double everything, uh, that'll take a couple of years for the unis to get themselves sorted out. And then, of course, the trainees have got to feed through. There is a plan to try and shorten the foundation courses of medics from five years to four. In the meantime, 15% of staff are now coming in from overseas. The point to make here is that there is a global shortage of healthcare people. It's a global phenomenon, a global problem. One hospital in America last week closed because they couldn't get the staff. We've got Australians coming over here pinching our nurses and all the rest of it. And if you're young, who wouldn't want to go and work on Bondi Beach? I absolutely <laughs> get that. 
So we've got, we have that problem in the short term. I mean, we've even been taking nurses from Nepal and Nigeria that are both red list countries uh, uh, under the World Health Organization's list. And the WHO says, please do not recruit people from these countries because they haven't got enough nurses of their own. But we're doing it. I mean, in the short term, the, there is one golden thing that we can do, and that is for the NHS to learn to be a much better employer because we are losing too many exhausted, knackered people who are saying, do you know what, it's not worth a count, I'll go and work somewhere else. And it's happening, and we've got more people leaving. Uh, last year, the figures were horrible, and we've got more people leaving now than we've, you know, before retirement age than we've ever had. So trying to get these trusts become better employers, it would be my number one priority. Do you dispute there's any problem? I mean, just to take one thing at random, the NHS spends at least 40 million a year on 800 diversity officers, while the NHS is, as we know, one of the most diverse organisations in the world. If we see nurses on inadequate pay, not enough staff, why would the NHS be paying large salaries to people who don't contribute to frontline care. Now, this NHS senior source said to me, HR departments are often working against NHS management with their various fashionable agendas and political activism. Is there any truth in that? The simple answer is that the diversity aspects of employment in the NHS, it's a matter of law. And there are things that you have to do. And in a big organisation employing 10,000, 12,000 people, you've got to have somebody doing it. Is there no truth in that at all? Are you literally saying when we look at other health services, everybody knows you go to Germany, you go to France, you go to Switzerland, you've got fantastically responsive health service, which isn't letting 50,000 people die avoidable deaths every year. There's no truth in any of this that other systems, they're only better than ours because of the money, are they? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the damage that's been done, the reason the NHS is unable to cope with present demand is primarily because of the damage that was done to the system before COVID. The impact of COVID, lockdowns, inaccessible health services. Am I saying that money is the only answer? No, I'm not. We have to get the recruitment piece sorted out. We have to get the retention piece sorted out. We have to get the strike sorted out. We have to get the waiting list sorted out. I mean, every day that there's a strike in the NHS, about 100,000 people get knocked off the waiting list. Yes, but other other countries, Roy, did not close down as much of their health systems as we did. And we came out of it with huge waiting lists. So I think lockdown actually saw areas of the NHS not performing while the front line was excellent. Other areas were not doing the same as other European countries. Yes, I agree. And you've got the wrong person on to talk to. You've got to get a politician on who made those decisions. Did the politicians make, I want to know this, I really want to know this, who said it's okay to switch off radiotherapy? Who said that? Because thousands, tens of thousands of innocent people will have lost their lives because their healthcare was shut down while large parts of the NHS became a COVID-only service. Was that a politician? Was that Matt Hancock who gave that instruction? I have no idea. You'll have to ask Matt Hancock. But I can tell you this, the decisions to circle the wagons around the NHS to so-called protect the NHS, the first time the NHS knew that it was going to be protected was when it saw the slogan on the lectern at number 10. 
Nobody in the NHS said, close us down. No GP said, don't let people come to us. These were political decisions. These were decisions that were made, I think, in, probably in good faith by the epidemiologists and so on. It was a political decision because there was concern, I think, based on what had happened in Italy, where in the early stages, where the hospitals were just completely overwhelmed and they didn't have the capacity. And it were, these were political strategic decisions that were made to preserve the NHS capacity if the uh, coronavirus looked like it was going to overwhelm the NHS. As it happened, it didn't. And now we'll find out from the coronavirus inquiry whether or not these decisions were the correct ones. And it, of course, you know, everybody's wise in hindsight. Well, no, there were plenty of people around the world who were wise in foresight and didn't close down lots of the cancer services. The government also requisitioned private hospitals at the cost of hundreds of millions of pounds, and many of those private hospitals were not used. We're at a situation now where even Labour shadow health spokesman Wes Streeting is saying, I'm not going to pretend the NHS is the end of the world anymore, and a Labour government will reform it. Do you think that Labour has got a better chance of of bringing in meaningful reform? Because in a way, the NHS is Labour's baby. Well, I mean, as far as Labour is concerned, I have no idea really what they're going to do. I mean, it seems to me that Keir Starmer is very reluctant to commit himself to anything that's likely to need money. And, you know, where will money come from? I mean, Streeting is talking about recruiting nurses and doctors off the back of changing the tax arrangements for non-DOMs. Well, I don't know much about non-DOMs, but I do know they're not stupid enough to sit here and watch their tax arrangements be torn. <laughs> most, most of them will be well gone before Streeting gets within a sniff of Downing Street. So I don't think that's going to work. There isn't a Labour policy to compare it with, really. So I don't know. I think in public perception terms, probably Labour would do better. So one of the main problems we have is the integration or rather the lack of integration between social care and the NHS. So we've got elderly people ready to be discharged. They're stuck in hospital beds for want of a place to go. What do you think needs doing, Roy? The Department of Health and Social Care has got that above the door. But as far as social care is concerned, it's got nothing to do with social care. Social care is run by local government, which is a completely different department of government. It's funded through that stream. And the Secretary of State for Health has virtually no control over it, whatever. And indeed, Matt Hancock brought this out in his evidence to the COVID inquiry last week when he said, I was trying to deal with care homes and had no power, no line of sight. I didn't even know how many care homes there were. It's worth pointing mm. out that the NHS workforce plan does not mention anywhere social care simply because it doesn't employ anybody in social care. Mostly people are employed in social care by small domiciliary companies or, or nursing home companies who pay pittance wages and wonder why they can't recruit people. It, you know, here it is. It's back to the money. You know, show me your policy. If you, if you want to show me you mean it, show me your budget. You did write this very powerful and moving personal essay on 65 years of the NHS. I was very touched by that. You spoke about your own personal circumstances and that your your mother had lost a baby if her firstborn had died and she nearly bled to death before the NHS Act came along and lifted from the shoulders of working people the anxiety of sickness, injury and accident. And it was this heroic piece of politics. But I researched a piece for an NHS anniversary and I took myself into all the things that the Beverage Act and Bevan could never have foreseen premature babies in vastly expensive incubators, heli you know, helicopters going to motorway accidents. But it is the case, isn't it, now that we can do all these 
things which would have been regarded 75 years ago as basically miracles and that it's very hard for any health system to continue to fund these extraordinary things. How do you think we can continue to fund that realistically without introducing a a, a private element to it? Well, with great difficulty, I would think. I mean, it's worth remembering what Bevan told the House of Commons uh, on the night the, the great defining debate and the vote was taken to pass the 1948 bill into law. He actually told the House of Commons that healthcare will become cheaper because uh, all the people that have got yes. problems, they would, we'd fix yeah. them all up. Nobody else would get ill and everything would be all right. Now, how much money has that saved in social care? Because elderly people have been able to get on, look after themselves and lead a normal life. So there's a kind of an upside to it as well. What I do agree with you is that uh, where these treatments are becoming more esoteric and where they actually uh, help a very narrow span of patients, it becomes increasingly difficult to find the money because everybody wants that. I mean, do you remember the huge row there was over IVF treatment, whether or not that should be on the NHS? And at the time, I argued that IVF treatments were for people with a condition. The condition was that they weren't able to create children. Mm. That was not an illness in the same way that baldness is a condition. It's not Mm. an illness. Uh, Mm. But of course, the the NHS has has taken those things on. You do get into this situation where you have a moral and ethical dilemma over who do Mm. you fix up and who do you not fix up. Roy, we're straying into it. We're straying into other matters. Is Rishi Sunak going to hit his target of reducing the NHS waiting list? You know what? I think he will. And I tell you why. A big percentage of people on the waiting list are waiting for a diagnostic. Mm. I think if you can crack the diagnostics through, you'll find about 30% of people who have a diagnostic need no further treatment. So I think in absolute numbers terms, I think he's probably on an odds on chance. And finally, Roy Lilly, on Planet Normal, we do sometimes give our guests magical extraterrestrial powers. If you had unlimited powers, what is the birthday present you would give the National Health Service? That sort out social care. Perfect. Thank you very much, Roy Lilly, for a very interesting, provocative interview. I tell you what, Alison, I thought that was a really, really interesting encounter. You know, Roy Lilly is an extremely knowledgeable bloke, but he's very much a creature of the NHS. He's been yes. a health sector consultant, held many senior positions for many, many years. And given that he is an NHS insider, I do actually think he is more willing to criticise than most other health insiders, though clearly, you know, he was trying to push back on some of the evidence that you were coming up with. But I do think that was a really good exchange of views there at a crucial time in the NHS's history, not least as we celebrate or at least mark its 75th anniversary. Yes, it was. I am so exercised by this 75th NHS anniversary. 75 years ago yesterday, an RM Bevan inaugurated the National Health Service. Everybody, irrespective of means, age, sex or occupation, shall have equal opportunity to benefit from the best and the most up-to-date medical and allied services available. And as, as Roy said, Bevan got most things right. But one thing that he got very, very wrong was that the NHS would cure people very quickly and demand would drop But as we know, Liam, over the last 75 years, demand has risen inexorably. You know, I gave some examples in my column yesterday. 
1948, only babies over 28 weeks gestation were considered viable. Today, that's over 90%. I visited the Royal London Hospital looking at premature babies the size of a shoe being coaxed towards life beautifully, really, and amazing, amazing expertise of the doctors and nurses. But nevertheless, each of those incubators costing more per night than a Mayfair hotel. So this is where we are now, uh, an extraordinary sprawling monolith, sort of Soviet socialist type system, trying to meet all the demands on it, all the miraculous uh, advances in medicine, everybody expecting a a hip replacement. And and so the miracles of 75 years ago are today regarded as perfectly standard issue. But the reason I'm exercised, Liam, and very, very upset and perhaps was quite, you know, quite testy with Roy is because yesterday we saw, you know, big service celebrating the NHS at Westminster Abbey. What the hell are we doing? No other country in the world has has a ceremony to honour its health service. They have properly funded state private funding of health services that actually work. Health services that don't kill tens of thousands of people a year who have treatable diseases. We have a complete catastrophe in this country, in our health service. It's not just not very good, it's positively dangerous. And as Professor Pat Price, one of the country's leading oncologists, keeps telling us, Liam, cancer care alone is a disaster. So there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of men, women and children who should be alive today and are not because of this thing we call affectionately our NHS. I don't feel any affection for it at all. I think we are labouring under a criminal delusion in this country. And I do think people are finally starting to wake up. Most people now either have had a bad NHS experience or they know friends or family who've had a terrible NHS experience. And just to end, Liam, I was in GB News last week and one of the young producers said that his father last week, who is an amputee, was in Medway Hospital sitting in his own faeces for two hours crying. That is the image we should be thinking about on the 75th birthday of the NHS. I think this kind of manic celebration stems from the fact that back on the 5th of July 1948, the NHS was the first health system of any Western society to offer free medical care for the entire population. But to say we're the best in the world is a bit like saying that we should win the World Cup every four years because Britain (laughs) invented football. And of course, that wouldn't get us anywhere. What gets you somewhere is hard work, truth-telling, you know, taking difficult decisions and leadership. And so much of that is absent. We have to tackle this problem from a non-ideological perspective, understanding that there are so many decent examples of healthcare across the continent. It's not just a choice between Britain and the stripped back, not free at the point of use system of America. We don't need to compare ourselves with America in this context. We need to compare ourselves with the likes of France, Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, which use mixed model private insurance systems, a combination of state and private money, but where you have competitive provision, where patients have choice. And that is how you're going to drive standards upward. And we need to examine why it was. I think it was this mania 
about the NHS, this kind of fetishization about the NHS. It was that, plus a combination of really militant healthcare unions, I think, in some cases, that meant that during the pandemic, the NHS, almost uniquely in the world, became a COVID-only service. You were right to question Roy on that, Alison. Well, Roy was um, neatly kicking it back to the politicians. And Sajid Javid has pointed out, as you said in your introduction, the percentage of spending on the NHS has risen absolutely incredibly since the year 2000. And yet the health outcomes are among the worst of all the major nations. And we've also had an intervention yesterday from Tony Blair, basically saying that more private elements need to be brought in, that people could have a certain amount of money and they could top up to go private. And I just think that now we we really are looking down the barrel of a gun. We absolutely, if they want people to stop dying unnecessarily, then they are going to have to take some tough choices. But as we've said earlier, Rishi Sunak seems incapable. He's much, much happier drafting a 15-year workforce plan than deciding how to save a few people who are dying of cancer next week. Now, I do take some comfort, Liam, from the fact that according to the British Social Attitudes Survey, patient satisfaction levels with the NHS have slumped to the lowest level ever. Just 29% said they were happy with the NHS in 2022. So perhaps this declining satisfaction, this growing awareness that what i mean if if you think of that figure 280 billion pounds the british people are paying for their health service and they can't even see a bloody doctor you know or, or maybe you can you know maybe you can have a telephone appointment in 3 weeks we've had into the planet normal inbox this week lots of examples of people still struggling to access healthcare And then you hear Amanda Pritchard, the chief executive of the NHS, wittering on on the Today programme yesterday about, oh, yes, people are so fond of the NHS. Well, that has got to stop now. And perhaps the political parties, which are very, very nervous of touching the NHS, will realise that the public no longer thinks the NHS is is a national treasure. It's a national disaster. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts and we learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal. Now this is an, an incredible email we got, Liam, from Alice. This is not her real name and the reason that she has an alias will become apparent very rapidly. Alice was writing in response to me writing about the gender-neutral toilets championed by the Bank of England Dear Alison and Liam, firstly, thank you for your weekly show. I sit there for the whole hour nodding my head, overjoyed that there are some people still willing to talk about mainstream views. You know, the ones the silent majority still believe but aren't allowed to say. Views such as there are two genders and there should be separate toilets for boys and girls. My daughter is at the school where four girls were sexually assaulted in the gender-neutral toilets. I obviously want to remain fully anonymous. The sad thing is my daughter Izzy blindly accepted these new arrangements, only saying that she won't go to the toilet at school anymore and refuses to do things such as change her sanitary towel at school due to the fear of boys hearing her in the cubicle and being silly about it. I had to buy Izzy those massive nighttime sanitary towels for the daytime at school so she won't need to change it. Like you say, Alison, 
Although Izzy finds all the gender stuff absolute madness, she is prepared to be appeased and prepared to not change her sanitary pad all day without a complaint just to not cause offence. I asked Izzy why she doesn't complain to staff and she said it's because she'd be called a transphobe. It reminds me, Liam and Alison, of when we were all COVIDiots, which was at least a change from being called racist, homophobic and transphobic. My Izzy calls herself a feminist, but she's a feminist that is now too scared to stand up for her right to go to the toilet during the day. The fact is that, yes, most men and boys do not mean girls and women harm, but this ridiculous arrangement allows the few who do mean harm to have easy access to vulnerable girls in their supposed safe place. All this to prevent offence for the very few children who for a few months are confused and want to be the opposite sex. Liam and Alison, what a time to be alive when reality is a thing of the past and we care only to protect hurty feelings and the truth, no matter how obvious it is, is actively denied. I despair and I wish we could rewind 20 years or hit the reset button for all our daughters. Stop the world. I want to get off. Alice. That is an amazing piece of writing by Alice, not her real name about her daughter Izzy again not her real name really really incredible email Alison Liam we should be you know we're both parents we've both got daughters we should just this is ridiculous this this liberal elite class waving through these stonewall diktats about gender neutral lavatories it's a game to them it's a way of assessing brownie points to you know so they can put it on all their their stationery and you know and and what is the consequence out in the country in our schools girls being frightened to go to the toilet in the day it's totally unacceptable I think with that, we need a bit of uplifting. So here's another yeah, Planet we do. Normal we poem do. from Bob. Winner, our resident Planet Normal bard. <laughs> so that is an ongoing competition. So other people, please do write your poems. And this, of course, My Heart Sinks is an apologia, if you like, to William Wordsworth, who, of course, wrote My Heart Leaps Up. <laughs> my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. <laughs> and so it was when my life began. And so it is now that I'm a man. So be it when I shall grow old or let me die. And Bob has riffed off that. My heart sinks, says Bob. (laughs) (laughs) My heart sinks when I see rainbows and I can see them everywhere. It's how our institutions pretend they really care. The truth is that their bosses are scared to lose their jobs. So they parrot all this rubbish to appease a crazy mob. These people weren't elected. So why do they have power? Our leaders should be stopping them. But shamefully they cower. And so it's left to others to fight against this curse. It's dangerous and divisive. And it just keeps getting worse. If you try to push against it, you'll be treated with disdain. In fact, you could lose everything. So don't you dare complain. (laughs) Brilliant. We love a bit of Bob, don't we? We do love a bit of Bob. And on the same issue, Alison, this is from Nick. Surely the simplest solution to this school's toilet issue would be for the trans girls, brackets, biological males, to use the same toilets as the female staff. <laughs> yeah, providing a valuable life skills lesson in how to manage monthly periods, the onset of menopause that these students will ultimately face in adulthood. By the way, with police involvement, that Essex school is a crime scene and as such could be named without compromising victim identity, says Nick. 
Only the head teacher and governing body benefit from anonymity. Best wishes to Alison and Liam from Nick. And this is from David, also uplifting. Hi, co-pilots. Last Friday evening, the Planet Normal Emergency Crisis Committee met at the Bowl of Gruel Inn to discuss the latest range of crises at Westminster. Their recommendations are that we fuel up the RRT, Rocket of Right Thinking, suit up, strap in and set the coordinates for the Palace of Westminster. Upon landing, our Planet Normal troops will stage a non-violent coup d'etat and take full control of the House of Commons, later to be renamed the House of Common Sense. (laughs) Our titled troops will head off to the House of Lords and sort them out. The heads of our new democracy will be Alison Pearson and Liam Halligan as joint CEOs. The new PNP, Planet Normal Party Board, will invite members of the public, such as George, to advise on the NHS, Lord David Frost to sort out the Whitehall blob and stop the using Yes Minister as a training manual. Sir Richard Dearlove will advise on home and overseas security. In fact, advice will be support from all who have appeared on the podcast so far. So, Alison Liam, it's time to begin training. A new dawn is about to shine through these very dark clouds. With very best wishes to you both and a big Thank you, David. I like the Planet Normal Emergency Crisis Committee, Halligan. I don't know about the Planet Normal Troops. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure listeners could man up, don't you think? (laughs) Crikey. This is from Johnny. Just back from daughter's graduation at Durham, where the graduands were praised for their perseverance during industrial action as they processed in their gowns for a graduation in which none of them had actually been awarded a degree. Is the education system such a commercial fraud that universities are able to take money and fob off their customers with a dressed up pretense? I understand that some Cambridge students are not going to have any of their final year exam papers marked. I also gather that some universities are drafting in temporary markers to grade papers. Among the students yesterday may even have been one or two who had failed their degree. And one must ask how will they feel when a transcript is delivered later this year to tell them they shouldn't actually have participated in that special day. There are so many elements of this whole system that are completely broken or failing from the breach of contract to provide an education education to the use of unqualified markers to grade papers from pretend ceremonies to leaving students in limbo with no grades as they try to compete in the jobs market or get a place in further education parents who have clearly sacrificed much to get their child to this launch point of their life express dreadful disappointment on a day which should be filled with pride in both their children and the establishment from which they were graduating while the life and death consequences of the nhs's problems are at the forefront of the news cycle the failure to process a year's worth of graduates stores up another generation of problems for the country and devalues the worth of yet another british institution Johnny. And that is it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our Sanctuary of Sweet Reason, our Flying Refuge of Reason Views, email of the week. Alison, it is your turn. Well, I think it has to be Alice, not her real name, for painting such a vivid picture of her daughter and all our girls who are too frightened to use the toilet because uh, Stonewall has decided that this is what diversity looks like. So, Alice, please uh, send us all your full details and and we're going to send Izzy your daughter uh, a planet normal mug as well because god help us let's hope we live on planet normal one day and if you enjoy planet normal please do leave a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers isabel bujard elliot lampett casso 
and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.